Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest a serial startup entrepreneur who is the CEO of Crowdlinker. His name is Aram Melkomov. Aram, welcome. Thank you, Marcus, for, ha- for having me. Excellent. So today we're going to cover a number of topics about building a, a startup and a scale-up, about failure, about mistakes, lessons learned, uh, how to keep the wheels on the car as you're going around corner at speed, hiring, all these topics. Uh, but before we do, can you just give me a quick um, 60 seconds on your background, please? I've been in the tech space for 12 years now. I've uh, launched uh, four different um, tech companies, three failed. My current one, I think, is my most promising success. <laughs> I've done everything from uh, e-commerce to real estate, content, and now I have a product studio where we build software solutions for startups, scale-ups, and enterprises globally. And I'm also a big fan of uh, helping out startups. I work with a lot of founders. I participate in various accelerators and incubators as a mentor and advisor. And I'm trying to get more into the investment side as well. Excellent. Well, it sounds like you didn't lose your shirt in all those failures. I was about to. (laughs) (laughs) It was close, borderline. (laughs) Excellent. So you just got scalped. (laughs) Totally. By the seat of my pants. Right. Okay. Well, let's kick off with the million dollar question. What was your best mistake? Best mistake? I think right when I finished my undergrad and I had a, had a major in business in, in entrepreneurship as my focus, I right away kind of jumped into uh, building my first, my first company. And I learned more in those two, three years than I did in my entire education uh, history. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, I mean, obviously I failed miserably doing it. Like we, we did it for a certain amount of time. We raised some money. We ended up just breaking even essentially and then just walking away from the business uh, with my partner. But I think going through that process really early on, I, w- I was 21 at the time, it really helped me understand what it really takes to build a business. It's not as easy as everybody thinks it is. I'm happy to have gone through that process because I learned a lot. And I think in business, if you don't go through that and you don't fail, you don't learn. And I'm happy to have gone through that to get to where I am now. Excellent. Well, uh, again, I I don't think I've ever learned anything really substantial from my victories, but from a damn good kicking, plenty. And there have been a hell of a lot of those. So um, I, I wear my scar tissue with pride. My one major regret is all those customers that had me inflicted on them my colleagues as well. So huge apology to all of you. I was stupid. It's my fault. Tell me this, as a first-time founder, what were your blind spots? Yeah, great question. So I was super naive and uh, super ambitious and had that innovator's dilemma really off the ground. And what we did was we won a bunch of business plan competitions and we had the support of like our professors, you know, going into this right after school. So you're and, the best uh, business in theory. Hey, it was like stellar. Like we had support, we won these competitions, we had some funding already being thrown our way. We're like, oh shit, we hit like a gold mine here. And little did I know that I was basically riding this uh, false train of, um, path to a business 
And what I didn't do, obviously, is I didn't speak to my customers. I got, <laughs> I got, I got funding, and I had all this, you know, support behind us, and we're like, okay, well, if other people believe in it, then obviously there's a market need. And I mean, my biggest lesson there was I did this the totally the wrong way. I should have made sure that whatever I did validate, I would have gone and spoken to those people early on before spending a single dime. I should have, you know, addressed the market head on and uh, analyzed my competitors a bit more rigorously and really tried to understand the market and the value proposition of what I'm offering. It was unique. It was never been done before, but anything going into a new market, like it's basically your setup to potentially fail if you don't have initial traction from your customers and having them on board, potentially buying into it early on. So was it that there weren't, um, you created an elegant solution to a problem that didn't exist? 100%. Okay. My pal, Jerry Lemberg, was one of the four original people who set up Intel. He then went to KB Capital. He was in, he, he was the first into Microsoft as an investor, first into Oracle. And he would define entrepreneurs as people who create elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. And especially if you're a first-time founder, pay yeah. heed to Aram's lesson. You know the square root of fuck all. And go out and speak to people who you expect to sell to because they will tell you what whether or not your product or proposition has legs. Seek advice. Do not have the arrogance to think that you know anything. And I mean anything. You're a blank slate. You have bundles of energy and you may have great ideas. But until they've been validated by people who will actually put their hand in their pocket to buy from you, you do not have a business and you are not an entrepreneur. You're an adventurer. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Just one thing to add there. Sorry, Marcus. I wanted <laughs> to say was when you have support of people and you have money to you know do, do the business, the biggest problem that I see today still happening is that a lot of companies go get money, like C-Stage, pre-seed, and uh, they go and they go build something because they have the support of people, but they don't actually, you know, make sure that what they're building is good. And so then they're basically running down this false path and then they launch and it's crickets. And as mm -hmm. an entrepreneur, it's probably like the worst thing that you could have. And I spent, I think, five, six months building up this platform that people could do it. And then we launched and we're like, nobody's buying. And we did some promotion. We went to some events and things like that and still nothing. So it was so demoralizing as an entrepreneur because you're like, well, hold on. I had all this good runway and I had this good, you know, follow through from all these people that were supporting me. Like what happened? Right. And you live, you learn. And I can't agree more with what you said there, Marcus. I think there's another really important element to this, which people need to pay heed to which is that they have a tendency to focus on function rather than customer outcome. And that's because they think that what they're doing matters, that customers buy their ugly baby. They don't. Customers pay for outcomes, and they will exactly. rent those outcomes only for as long as they are relevant. And if you don't start off relevant, you're not going to get any traction. So find out what are the jobs that your customers are trying to get done. What progress are they actually making towards them? What are their struggling moments? 
what, how do they describe those struggling moments in their own language so that you can start to align what you're doing in terms of product development and your go-to-market messaging so that you meet them where they are? Because the bulk of people are not in the market to buy what you have in your total addressable market. There's a tiny, tiny percentage. And if you go to them with the wrong message at the right time, you're not going to get traction. If you go with the right message, but they are not at the stage where they are transitioning from trying to learn how to solve their problem to actually looking for a solution, you're going to fall, your message is going to fall on stony ground as well. So I think Aram's really brought some vital lessons here, which is that you have to make sure that you speak to and listen, listen to your customers. Do not just make the assumption because someone like a wealthy dentist has thrown money at you um, that you have a business that has legs. Just because people have money does not make them smart and it does not equip them to help you run a business. And everything, the buck stops with you as the founder. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about the joys of investors. <laughs> Our arm's giggling at the moment. Okay, so Drew D'Agostino described investors in three categories, good money, bad money, and dumb money. Now, often good money, bad money, dressed up as good money. Um, so how do you discern whether you're actually getting, well, first of all, can you define what you would consider good money? And how can you discern whether you're actually getting good money or a gambler, speculator, and a shyster dressed up as good money? Good question, Marcus. I would call that not good money, but when I when I speak to people and I, I'm inquiring about where they're getting their initial capital from, why they're doing it, I always like to refer to something called, it's, we should call it smart money, because you could get money anywhere. Capital, even now, like from all the investors that I've been speaking to and VC funds, there has actually not been any change in the last year due to the pandemic in terms of shortage of access to capital. So it's not an issue. The issue is, why are you getting money from that specific person? And so the smart money approach is like, okay, I get money from you, but what else am I going to get from you as an investor? Are you going to help me with my go-to-market strategy? Are you going to help me address some of my needs of acquiring users? Are you going to introduce me to people? Are you going to help me network? Are you going to help me on the talent hiring front? So it's what comes on top of that money, I would say, is, is more important. Because, you know, I've seen and I've heard of a lot of people who got money and, you know, let's call it bad money. And they just basically don't really provide any other value attachment to it. And so the founder, you know, is looking for guidance more than anything, especially an early stage founder, first time founder. Great. They got money, but like, what do I do with it? How do I manage my budget? How do I manage my spend? Um, and there's also like the money that you get from family and friends. And I'm always cautious about family and friends money. It could ruin relationships. I've seen it go really poorly. It could work sometimes. But you know, there's so much non-dilutive capital available in the market these days that you know you can get pretty easily. The lots of grants, lots of government support, lots of initiatives going on through different types of corporate initiatives that you can get money and you know it doesn't come with a lot of 
you know, you strings, know, uh, strings attached. But the problem is people don't know where to go and find that money. It's not publicly marketed because, you know, if it was, and you know, it actually is in certain cases, everybody would go and get it, but it's still um, important to always ask yourself, okay, why am I taking this money from this person? What am I going to get more in terms of my ask for them? And one really important thing I want to bring up is when you go and you speak to an investor, say it's a VC fund or whatever, any type of angel investor, they're going to be drilling you in terms of your business. You should be confident enough to turn the tables and drill them because it does go both ways. You are going into a marriage. Why do you have to be the one that is on the attacking side being probed constantly? Probe back. See if they're the right partner for you. I see an exact parallel here when people are going for a job. I won't hire someone who is passive. I don't want them to be aggressive. But the first interview is them selling to me by doing proper discovery. I want to see that they can sell. And as a founder looking for money, you need to adopt the, uh, the mindset that you are just about to give these people the keys to the kingdom. You are going to be in bed with them. So you want to, before you put a ring on their finger, you've got to make sure that you guys are compatible because for the next three to five, seven, eight years, they're going to be on your back, on your board. And you better be bloody certain that these people have your best interests at heart and are committed to your success. And so I'll take slight issue with what Aram said in terms of the difference between smart money and bad money. I think you, what you were describing is dumb money, which is actually better. I would rather have dumb money, which basically just they, they give you the money and they let you get on with it. But it's the bad money. It's the toxic relationship where they start trying to get you to do really fucking stupid things. One of the themes that is really driving me, it's incensing me at the moment, is the number of investors that drive the board to put pressure on the sales team to put pressure on customers to buy before they're ready, to acquire customers or logos, and to behave like boiler room salespeople. Now, what you do there is you end up destroying your reputation. Long-term, you devalue your business. You create churn and mental ill health in your middle management and your salespeople. Your middle managers are put under massive pressure and your top people leave and you are left with the dregs. There is no positive upside to letting venture capital or private equity drive that kind of behavior. And as a founder, you need to establish the ground rules and boundaries early and you need to say no when they push you. Now, the danger there is you might get pushed. So you need to make sure that you have a good lawyer on your side to make sure that they do not have that level of control. So Aram, this is clearly striking a chord. Chime in. Oh boy, yeah. It's really imperative and you hit it. It's like bang on. When you bring on anybody as an investor into your company, you're giving equity away. And that equity, you don't know it. And you might be naive and you know a bit 
not aware of what's happening, especially as a first-time founder there, but you're giving away some really invaluable parts of your company that you would have a very, very hard time to get back uh, over time. And from what I'm seeing also these days with a lot of people that I speak to, start to end, everybody's always referring to, it takes 10 years to exit a business. So imagine being involved in a relationship that is toxic with somebody that you brought on for that long. It's like a marriage that can be a nightmare for you and for everybody on your team. And it's so, so important that when you're building a company early on to not give out too much equity away in your company, because you have to understand that over time, when you raise more capital, you dilute and you dilute and you dilute more of your ownership and voting control shares of your organization that you're trying to build. And you can theoretically and practically get forced out like over the rounds of, of, of fundraising that you do. And I've seen it happen countless times and it's so painful to see that because the founders are the ones who put their life, blood, sweat, everything. Marriages, children. Mortgages, houses, like everything into these businesses only to have it just taken away from them uh, so quickly because they've lost control in their company. So I implore founders who are going to be listening to this to take one key lesson away is when you're building out a company early on, try your best to bootstrap it as much as you can in the early days until you get to some sort of MVP where that MVP can be then sold and you can start you know, generating revenue through it. Can you define uh, MVP for people who don't know the term? Sure, yeah. I like to classify MVP in different naming conventions, so I'll, I'll mention them. So MVP traditionally stands for minimal viable product, but I like to call it also a minimal marketable product or a minimal viable job that it does. And what I mean by that is an MVP should be something that solves one core pain point, one job in its function. Everything else is nice to have. If you could really, really identify with your customers, what is that minimal viable job that they need done that's going to provide inherent value that is going to make them pay you money for it early on, you have a business. If you haven't figured that out, you don't have a business yet. Go back to the drawing board is at that point yet because you're not there yet. You're going to give out equity in a company that isn't set up properly yet foundationally in terms of solving a business point. And you're only going to hurt yourself later. Go and build out an MVP, get some traction and, and stick it out. Bootstrap it, bootstrap it. There's a very famous company, which I'm sure you know, and a lot of other people in the world know called Calendly. Calendly went and bootstrapped. They did initial only, I think, a 300,000 raise early on. And they bootstrapped it with that just initial amount of money. And they didn't raise any money until like very, very later on. I think they raised like 100 or 200 million, if I'm not mistaken. So the lesson there is take what you need and, you know, if you must have it, but bootstrap it and figure out yourself. Don't go and raise money until you're ready to raise and have a reason to raise that money for. If it's for scale, because you hit like, you hit product market fit, you're like, okay. 
I know my users. I know where they are. I know how to acquire them. I know what my cost acquisition is. Only then go and get money because you're going to go to your investors saying, I have a working formula. I know how to go get more users. I need your money to scale. And here's how I'm going to spend it. If you don't have that plan in place yet, you are not ready to go get money. So this raises two really important questions. The first question is, why would investors invest when you don't have an MVP that is really viable? Because to me, that just sounds like speculation. Total speculation. But, but what, yeah. why, would they, why would they put good money into a proposition that doesn't have a customer base or doesn't have a market and hasn't got a product yet and just on the basis of an idea? Yeah, so when you look at a business early on, that's pre-revenue, pre-product, investors are really, more than anything, looking at the team at that point. And so when you look at a team, if that team has some track record prior success, then investors are willing to give you money at that stage because of what you can do as a team. So it's very speculative to your point. And it's essentially, okay, you're basically investing in me because of my capabilities or because of my subject matter expertise or something I've done before that gives you the confidence, thinking that I could go and do this successfully. But it's not you know, a solution that works consistently. It works in some cases, but more than not, I would say 80% of the time from when you are at that point, building out your business early on, there's like a million things that can happen. There's a tons of things that could sidetrack. You might have to pivot. And so if you take money from those people and you pivot, okay, you're basically then, you should be starting then maybe a new business with a new cap table. But if you already have investors on board, then you're basically stuck with them and they already own a part of your business at that point. So to answer your question, the reason why I feel investors do that sometimes is because they want to have a larger stake in your business and they will ask for more equity in order to counter the risk side of the investment. So I've seen some really unfortunate circumstances in those stages when you're pre-revenue, pre-product that people give away 30 to 40% of their business to those investors by them giving, by them getting some money initially in order to go and figure it out. But they don't understand the, the, the chain reaction this is going to have later on for, for them when they go and raise again in the later rounds. Well, the failure rate of businesses um, who are invested in at that stage is terrifyingly high. I mean, uh, yeah, there's already an 80% failure rate of businesses after three years. Why would you choose to increase the probability of failure by bringing in angel or venture capital? It strikes me that people have been seduced by uh, the dream and the myth. And I think to a large extent, and it's not every investor by any stretch, but the significant majority uh, are gamblers and speculators. They increase the probability of your business failing because their objectives drive behavior that is counter to your business's success. And as a result of that, they drive the relentless acquisition of new logos, uh, which then creates a backstorm of customer complaints, churn, 
you end up having to recruit before attrition. you're ready, yeah. attrition, all this kind of stuff. So be really careful. And uh, Aram's advice of bootstrapping is really good. And that therefore means the second question, which is what skills do you really need to develop as a founder? And who are the people that you need to hire early in order to ensure that you can bootstrap? Yeah, great question. I, I recently had a chance to, to speak to um, somebody who is a general manager at something called Entrepreneurs Fund. And I really, really love and admire their approach. So normally in a startup team, you have, let's call them the hustler, you have the designer, and you have the coder. So the coder is the person building it. The designer is the one who's designing it, essentially. And the hustler is like that business marketer. I like to call it my minimal viable team, yeah. MBT, right? Traditionally, you know, you, you could find three, you need three people, right? But Entrepreneurs Fund, they're adamant of a two-person team. Because with everything today about technology and, you know, it's a commodity in many ways, more than anything, you need to have a good team and you need to have a jack-of-all-trades type of approach. So the way that they define the two-team approach is you have a business guy who should be able to do the marketing and some of the design. It doesn't have to be good design. It could just be wireframing. And there's tons of wireframing tools like Balsamic, wireframe.cc. You could go and wireframe what you need. And there's a lot of no-code tools out there already that allow you to go and design what you want and it spits out code. So, you know, you could get by with a lot these days. The one that they really say is a must-have is your technical co-founder, which I actually 100% agree with. Often not, a lot of the teams that we work with, especially early stage founders, we've seen it. And my advice is always to them to go and find a technical co-founder. They're the business people. They're the ones who like have the idea. But we love working with them. But in our recommendation to them, it's always go find your CTO. Go find your technical co-founder. And Entrepreneurs Fund is an organization that does just that. They help you go and find that matchmaking process of finding you that partner that you need for your business. And I think in any team size, uh, in every team dynamic, you need to have somebody who's responsible for the tech and the product. And so for me, a CTO is somebody who will take ownership of the, te the technology, but also the product end to end. In a lot of organizations, the CTO is like this like title of a person who just does the tech and then somebody else does the product. But I disagree. And I think a CTO should own product as well in the organization. And uh, as, a, as a CEO or as a business person, you just are responsible for the sales and the marketing, go speak to your customers, identify what it is that the hell that you you think that you're doing, what what <laughs> what they need from you more than anything, and understand what it is that you're trying to build by having that really close relationship with them and have your business partner be that technical co-founder, be involved in that process because they need to also hear it first hand from, from those type of users. So just let, let me reiterate, the CTO needs to speak to living, breathing human customers and prospects in order that they can 
collaborate deeply and yeah. co-develop the product so it is directly relevant to solving the problems that the customers want to have fixed and will pay for. 100%. And even more than that, when you're building a product, and this is super, super important, and I can't stress this enough because it happens so many times that people just go and build it and then show it. When you're building a product, start off with a wireframe, go show that wireframe to somebody, get a sample size of 10 users, 10 target ICPs of people who, ICPs are ideal client personas, of people who are going to be using this product, show them the wireframe, walk them through it. It takes a week to do a wireframe, even less, a very, very low effort. Go and show the wireframe, get feedback, use tools like usertesting.com, usabilityhub.com. Go put your wireframes on there. If you don't have access to those 10 users, those platforms help you access those type of... And that was usertesting.com and... user Usertesting.com and usabilityhub.com. Those are great platforms. You pay for, obviously, but you go in, you select the users that you want to speak to, to show your product. You ask the questions that you want them to answer. You show them the wireframes through the tool. And they basically have recorded sessions of them looking at your product, identifying with it, answering your questions, and it's all recorded. So you don't have to go do 10 separate sessions. You have them done in one shot, and then you take that away. And then if you have follow-up questions, you can reach out to those people and say, hey, I didn't quite understand. What did you mean by this? Once you've done that first step, then go back to the drawing board, fix it. And then if you want to go to another stab at your wireframes, do it again. Or if you want to go to the high-fidelity designs, or actually, my recommendation is these days, go and build your wireframes. Sounds crazy, but you can actually go and code out wireframes, even if they're black and white, low fidelity, mid fidelity, whatever. Go and build that and get those people to start using a working product, proof of concept or MVP, whatever it is you want to call it, and then get them to use it and give feedback later. Uh, and then make it pretty later on. Doesn't this has to work? Don't spend time trying to make it look pretty and very, you know, wonderful looking and whatever you you know it is. Just go and get it out there. Ship it. Constantly ship something, and speak to the people saying, "What did you think of this? Love it? Hate it? What would you change? Are you going to use it? Can you pay me money now for it?" That's the question you should always be asking. <laughs> um, it's a really good acid test. If you're not getting paid, then you don't have a viable product. And uh, Show I, me the I, money. Think, I think there's a, a, another a really important question as well, because what I've found with a lot of founders is they tend to be very defensive about showing their product for fear that their fabulous, uh, unique idea will be stolen. So what kind of protections are there on usability.com and usertesting.com to prevent uh, their idea from being lifted? Good question. I, I think there's some sort of NDA that is being signed with any of the testers that you could push through, through yourself or through the platform. So there's some confidentiality around what's being shown to them that's covered. But I really want to touch upon what you just said. Founders are... It boggles my mind. Founders get super protective about their ideas. 
An idea is an idea. Get over it. It's all about the execution at the end of the day. Worry about this later. Try to get something out and show it to people. And my litmus test for it, in terms of when you're ready to show a product, if it looks like crap, but it does work, launch it. Get it out there. There's a famous company called Ritual, uh, which allows you to order food in advance to get it to for, for allow you to go and pick it up. The CEO of that company said something which was awesome, which I which I really love is um, when they were building their product and they essentially had a glorified wireframe as a product. It looked like shit, but it worked. It allowed you to go and order food from a restaurant that allowed you then to go and just go pick it up. And they launched it. It looked like crap, but it worked. And that was for them enough for them to accept it as is. And you should be comfortable and confident in your product that if it looks like dog shit, it's good enough. Like, you know, don't worry about having it look perfect because then you're constantly in this endless loop of trying to make it look perfect. And it never is perfect. You'll never get to that point in your product of it being that being like that. Just get it out and let people use it. There are two thoughts that come to mind here. The original iPhone, it was definitely revolutionary. And a lot of us got suckered into buying it. But the functionality was utterly shit. You couldn't copy and paste. And no. as a business tool, I mean, I, I almost gave up and I was on the verge of giving up. Then they finally updated it, or I bought, I probably got suckered into buying another one because it was pretty. And it finally became something usable. And the research that Salesforce did in December 2020 experienced the shift that uh, the program is called. And if anyone wants the deck, then email me, marcus at laughs-laughs.com with experience the shift, and I'll send you a copy. And one really important bit of output from there is that you get a 600% faster product development cycle by speaking to people who are pissed off and angry. Speak to the people who think that your product is shit. They'll tell you exactly what you need to do to fix it. Exactly. It's so true, Marcus. Like, why go and get stuck in a bubble with your team, constantly redefining, redesigning? Just get it out. And don't worry about somebody copying it. If somebody is going to try to copy you, believe me, you're going to have a head start over them already because you already did it and you already have an advantage over anybody who's going to be starting at any point. Because you're always, if you're speaking to your customers and you're listening to them and you're listening to all the things that they're telling you about that's bad about the product, you inherently have a leap up over any of your competitors, hands down. Because there's another point. If they steal your idea and they improve it, steal it back. Competition is, is a healthy thing. Um, exactly. And the idea that you've got this monopoly, and I, I, again, be really careful in the team that you build. Do not hire in your own image. Hire people with diverse perspectives, diverse backgrounds, diverse experience, so that there is range within the team and you don't exist in a bubble. And listening to yourselves 
means that you're probably existing in an echo chamber and you're getting further and further away from your customer. Go and speak to people who you want to sell to, who have the kind of problem that you can fix, and then court their criticism. Invite it. Ask them, have you seen better? Where? What do we need to do to improve it? Why was the experience a three? And invite negative feedback. Negative feedback is the quickest feedback loop to improve. The people in the middle are going to give, they don't know why they like it. And your fans are probably not going to know why they love it. They'll tell you the things that you probably want to hear. That's not what you need as a founder. It's not what you need if you're trying to grow a business and give it legs and sustainability. For sure. So talk to me about the team, because I think a lot of people really struggle to recruit and to recruit well and to build a pipeline or a bench of suitable candidates because they see recruitment as something that they react to when they need a vacancy, as opposed to the single most important function of any leader or manager. Yeah. Recruiting is the grind. It's a challenge. You have to be constantly doing it as a CEO. This is like a big lesson of mine is, you know, earlier on, I realized that my job as a CEO really evolves, revolves around two things these days. It's sales and recruitment. That's it. I'm always trying to go and find new people to work with. At the same time, I'm always trying to find new people to work with us because without good talent, you have no good team and that team can go and deliver great results on your products, on your client work or whatever it is. When you're looking for team members, I always like to find team members that have an entrepreneurial drive, who are entrepreneurs. They um, can be generalists. I'm reading a book right now called Range about that generalists are not, not the future, but they're a winning formula these days. Specialists were something that was obviously a focus back, you know, before, but I think to be successful these days, you have to be looking at generalists in your company, people who could do multiple things well and not something super well, because that way they can have an appreciation, in my opinion, of what it takes to do certain things. And they could help you out on different types of initiatives. And uh, the, the team that I have are pretty multifaceted. They're quite complementary uh, in terms of skill sets to each other. And so when you have people who do the same thing, I find that you start to lead to clashes at times, which does lead to constructive conversations at times, but you should really have a squad or a unit of, um, of a team that feels like, okay, these are my strengths, these are my weaknesses, and talk about it. Really transparently share with each other in terms of, I really suck at taking notes. I really suck at being organized. I really suck at X, Y, Z. And that person could be like, cool, I'm really good at organization and taking notes and other things. I'll do that. I'll help you with that. I suck at your weaknesses. And when you have these candid conversations, you really start to gel and lube really well together because you are working off each other. And it leads to amazing things that happens. One other thing, like on my marketing growth team that I've seen amazing results around is we set 
a very high level ambitious goal three, six months out. We have no fucking idea how we're going to get there. <laughs> None. But we're like, okay, let's go. Let's try. Like every week is a sprint. Every week is a hustle. We're trying, experimenting, tons of new things, campaigns start and we learn, we look at the data, we move on. You really have to be in that mindset of failing fast and failing often as a team, because if you're not failing, you're not learning. And I've said this before, it's super, super important. But as a team, you have to be comfortable with each other that you are all going to put it most likely uh, look bad in front of each other at some point. It's inherent, it's inevitable. You will fail, you will look stupid, and that's okay. And you have to accept that. If you're the type of person that's always like an A person that never wants to fail, maybe you know it's not the right team dynamic for you because you have to be good in your shoes that you will fail, you'll look bad, but you're gonna learn at the end of the day. Um, I've recently interviewed, and the interview's coming out in a couple of weeks, a chap called Andrew Barclow. And uh, he's written a book which is due out shortly called Scaling for Success. And his perspective is how do you scale by hiring and developing the right people? And people are your greatest asset. They are an investment. And despite what your balance sheet says, they are not a cost. You do make bad investments. But if you make the right investment, the right hire can be worth tens or hundreds or billions of dollars. And the challenge is to understand that you need to build a diverse team with that range and where ego is not brought into the discussion. Everybody must have a mindset that failure is your best teacher. Failure is universal, unavoidable, and part of the human condition. And you do not punish failure. You punish hiding it. That was uh, straight from Ray Dalio from his book, Principles, and how he operates his business very successfully, funnily enough. And also building on the idea that you recruit people for their strengths that make up for the weaknesses in the rest of the team and vice versa. Hire people whose strengths make your weaknesses irrelevant. And that means as a manager, as a founder, you need to be able to deal with a very difficult, diverse range of people. Difficult people are not to be avoided. Difficult people make stuff happen. Now, there is a difference between being cussed, rude, aggressive, and unpleasant, and being assertive, being talented, being opinionated. And you need to manage inclusively when you're in a scale-up and a startup. People need to have a voice. So do not hire a CTO who says nothing. Uh, make sure they are strongly opinionated, that they are willing to go out and speak to people. They will stand their ground. And together, it's the grit in the, pearl, uh, in the oyster that makes the pearl. And growing a scale-up business that achieves hypergrowth is hard work. It's difficult. If it was easy, lots of people would be doing it, or they would be investors because that's the easy job. Just throw money at lots and lots and you know, play roulette and hope one comes up 32 red, because that's all they need. But that's not what you need as a founder, because all of your eggs are in this one basket. So make sure that you've built your team so it's strong, 
it's all the uh, members of the team are committed to the same outcome. Understand that you share a common purpose, but also that your values are cohesive. Because if you're trying to build a business just to make money, I promise you the probability of failure is 90% plus. If you are trying to solve a problem and serve your customers, deliver outcomes that they need, and you are engaging with your customers, then the probability is that the way you will behave is that you will make them feel safe because you will be reliable, relevant, and responsive. Always practice rigorous authenticity with your customers, with your partners, and with your staff. And that means you need to be vulnerable. As Aram said, if you're shit at taking notes or uh, managing um, stuff on a spreadsheet, then tell people and have people step up and volunteer. Enter into constructive conflict. But above all, communicate with clarity so that people can be authentic and open. Make sure everyone feels protected in the environment. Not only do you need buyer safety and partner safety, but you need employee safety. People need to be able to come to work to be able to do their best work every day. That's what great managers do. Make sure there's core value alignment so that you're forming a long-term partnership. Don't hire so that you can turn people over every 12 months. And that sends a terrible message to your staff. It sends a terrible message to your customers. Create strong and sustainable agreements. Collaborate deeply. Co-develop the solution. Create value. Help customers be successful. Help partners be successful. And help employees be successful so that you deliver outcomes to everybody. And that way, they will always be loyal and they will always pay attention when you phone them up or you ask for their help. Fair? Very fair. Just to add on that. You're right. A lot of people go create businesses for money. If you're going in it with that type of mentality, you're just set up for failure. What you said is so true because if you're solving the right pain point and you're building the right business around a problem that people are willing to pay you for, you don't realize this. But if you just focus on that, the money will organically come. Absolutely. It's a byproduct. It'll just, it's a byproduct. And it's amazing what. The thinking is, if your North Star metric is like, I want to go help these people solve this problem for them, don't worry about the money. They'll probably, and I've seen this happen before, say, okay, like how much you're solving this problem for me? Like, what's it going to cost? <laughs> and just let them tell you the value of what it is that it's helping them solve. And that could be your sign of how much you maybe should be charging for it. And speak to enough people about that specific question, and you'll get a good idea of what you should charge and build off that. And you'll see people will start paying you if you're solving something that is a problem for them. And it's, it's just so important that we focus on that instead of money these days. And money will come. There is a really interesting micro trend at the moment, but I'm seeing it more and more. And my favorite example of this is Palo Alto Network's professional services team led by S, uh, their SVP, Patty Hatter, despite masses of pushback within the organization, created outcome-based pricing for their professional services team. And in Q4 of 2020, they grew their annual revenues by 93%. Now, I'm not saying that you don't need to get paid along the way. 
But if you understand your customer's problem and you understand the implications of it, and you can take them through that discovery process, uh, a process called pain by numbers. So you identify what the hidden cost of inaction is so that you can then displace their current preferences because your biggest competitor isn't other companies out in the market. It's the status quo. 60% of buying cycles end up in no decision. 10.4% go to an RFP where you have a one in four chance of winning on average. Now, that's a 2.6% probability of winning. People who bet their business on that have to have a lot of bets. And it's very expensive. The hidden cost of RFPs is the third highest hidden cost in any business. The second highest is the hidden cost of sale. And the highest is the wrong hire. Now, if you don't understand those hidden costs, then chances are when you're speaking to your customers, you're going to be talking about features and functions uh, instead of outcomes. And when you're building good strategy, it needs to be focused around the outcomes. It needs to be focused around the customer. You need to understand that story. And if you haven't got all of that before you go to market, then chances are you're going to be barking up the wrong tree and you'll be convincing yourself that your ugly baby is a lot prettier than it is. Now, this then comes to the question around how you scale. Now, I've got a particular bias in this area, which is I believe that good tech companies nowadays should not be thinking about building a direct sales force. What they really should be doing is they should be born in the channel and they should grow up in the channel. You look at a company like UiPath, 100,000% growth in the last seven years. I mean, those numbers are just mind-blowing. And everything they do is through the channel, psychotic. And they're growing 80% per quarter. And outside of the US, they are 100% channel business. It's almost impossible to grow 10% if you set your channel up correctly you're more likely to 10x rather than 10%. Now, that's a 1,000% higher growth rate without the wheels coming off because you don't end up with those fixed costs and those liabilities. And you've got a partner is worth 50, 100 customers. So let's talk about building a really effective channel. What's the mindset you have to go into when you're going through the courtship even before you recruit partners? Yeah, good question. Funny enough, our plan for 2021 is really channel-focused at Crowdlinker. The reason I decided to go down, down this approach was sales in our industry is tough inherently. Trying to sell professional services is a challenge, you know, in most industries, but it's so much easier when you're working with a partner that has the same level of quality as you do, the same level of understanding of what they do in their space as you do in your own space, like being a subject matter expert. And you don't realize, but the, the impact you have when you have your client portfolio, they have their client portfolio, their networks, my networks. It's amazing what the impact you can have when you kind of collaborate and share and talk about pain points of your own customers versus mine and finding complementary 
partners is great because I don't want to do what they do. They don't want to do what I do. They are really good in terms of what they're really focused on. And I have my strengths and I know what my weaknesses are. So I'd rather work with a partner who has my weaknesses addressed in their strengths. It's tough finding good partners, though, I have to admit. You have to go through a courtship period of like, okay, what do you look for in your clients? Who are they? How do they function? What do they look for in your services? How do you work together? What are the expectations, you know, communication? And it takes many meetings at times to go and find the right partner. But once you do, it is a breath of fresh air because I'm referring stuff to them. They're referring stuff to me. We know we trust each other in terms of the work that we do at the end of the day and the quality and the output that we both deliver. And it's, it's like finding, you know, it's finding like a spouse, you know, it's like, okay, you're going to handle, you know, the PR and the agency side of this advertising. We're going to build the product. You're going to go and promote the shit out of it. Cool. I don't need to worry about it. I trust you because at the end of the day, when we build a product and it launches and there's no awareness around it, it makes us look like shit. So when we have a partner that can go and up it up to like a whole different level, we feel awesome about what we've created because we're using them to push it out and put it on a, on a pedestal in the sense that they're as passionate about the client relationship as we are. And finding partners that are passionate is tough, but once you have it, it's awesome. So to build on Aram's point, a partnership is like a marriage. So before you put a ring on it and say, I do, take the time to explore your compatibilities and identify their strengths and weaknesses, your strengths and weaknesses, and make sure that they negate each other. Now, in making channel sales work, uh, Dave and I wrote that there are 14 questions that you have to ask before you say, I do. The first is, can you pin your logo to their office door? Or are they operating out of their back bedroom? Uh, is somebody beside the CEO the top salesperson? How do they get new business? What kind of reputation do they have? Is their culture more technical than sales? Are your business cultures complementary and compatible? How easy are they to deal with from the outset? How do they feel about you talking to their customers? Are their salespeople asking good questions? Do they welcome your onboarding process? Will they let you train their salespeople as if they were your own? Will they do regular pipeline review meetings with you and accountability meetings? Do you agree on what good looks like? Have you identified what the win-win-win outcomes are? And you, in order to create a, a successful partnership, you've got to be a, um, find trust and shared values. And you want long-lived, successful channel partnerships. And that means that you cannot take on a land army. You have to take on a special forces unit. Um, in the book, we say that you don't take on any more than four partners per channel manager every trimester. That's a maximum of 12 in a year. And there is a very good reason for this. I've spoken to over 400 companies that do channel sales. And without exception, not one, two to 4% of the partners generate 40 to 60% of their revenue. Let me re repeat that. Two to 4% of the partners generate 40 
to 60% of the revenue. This is called Price's Law. 50% of your output will be generated by the square root of the number of people in your organization. If you have 10 salespeople, three will typically generate 50%. If you have 10 distributors, uh, distribut sorry, 100 distributors, 10 will produce 50%. If you have 10,000 partners, 100 will produce 50%. Take your time in the courtship, in the selection and due diligence process, and make sure you treat those partners as if they are your own. Your number one job as the vendor is to make your partners wildly successful. And my pal, Zach Selch, routinely, having built over 1,000 partnerships over 30 years in 130 countries, he will work with one company per territory. And in the first 90 days, he will help put money in their back. Uh, in fact, he'll probably be putting the second deal on the table by that point. Because if you don't put the second deal on their table within 90 days, most partners go dark. And you only have to look at uh, vendors that list all of their partners. And then you go and ask them how many of them are actually producing anything. And most of them say that most of the, our partners do absolutely diddly squat. Okay. That's a waste of time and money. Think about the cost of recruiting them. By the time you've gone through the due diligence, you've gone through legal, uh, you've put them onto your partner portal, you've trained them, and then they do nothing. So work with a special forces unit. And the objective is to understand what they are trying to achieve in their business, and then work together to co-develop a plan that helps them achieve their outcomes. And if you help them achieve their outcomes, you are their best friend, and they will take your call. It's not like most channel managers who, frankly, it's amazing that they can breathe unaided. Um, their average behavior is they phone up and they say, Aram, what do you got for me this month? Nothing great. I'll speak to you next month. And every time you see their number come up on caller ID, your heart sinks and your stomach starts to roil. Okay? When your partner managers phone your partners up, they should be excited to take the call because they know the call will be timely contextually relevant and always valuable. And they know that they will leave smarter or richer as a result of that touch. That was so good. Marcus, I, I would love to get those questions actually from you because it was a bang on. That's exactly what people should be sending and asking their partners. Excellent. I'll send you a copy of the book. Please. Aram, sadly, we've come to time, which I'm deeply disappointed by because this has flown by and I'd love to have you back. Tell me this, what, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Biggest challenge is talent acquisition these days, as well as um, having a clearly identifiable plan around sales pipeline and my resourcing allocation that I need to support the work that's coming. It's sometimes challenging to fully plan out the allocation needs of the team members that I need to be on what projects at what time, depending on other projects that are currently in progress. So that's my two main problems. Both of them are very common. In terms of the recruitment issue, the first thing, and I know you're already doing this, but uh, for anyone who's listening, make sure recruitment is every manager's number one job and they are measured and compensated for their behavior around it. So it is a daily activity. 
three or four telephone interviews a day, one or two physical interviews per day. Always build the bench so that you have five to seven quality candidates for every key position lined up. So when a vacancy comes free, or if you spot an absolute diamond, just to find the money, beg, borrow, steal, stop some other project that's failing and spend the money on hiring A players. And hire people who are high on trust, even if they are mid-level on competency, but you can hire for what you cannot train. So like, like Aram said, find those generalists. You know, I've worked in 500 segments of the market and there is not one where I have not been able to help people deliver 100, 200, 300, 400, 800, 1200, 1400% growth. Because in six meetings, I will have all the knowledge and language that I need to be able to be viable and run on my own. And uh, you need to hire well. Um, so make hiring a priority. It is a central tenet of every leader and every manager. And make coaching and uh, creating a career path runway, an apprenticeship, part of the role. Whenever you hire somebody, find out what they want to do next, and then give them a runway in order to build in and grow into that role so they are competent on day one. Don't tap them on the shoulder and say, you're a manager now. Uh, with uh, And basically all they have as a reference point is all their crap managers that went before them. We need to treat this like a profession or a, 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 an old trade with an apprenticeship. And the sales pipeline and systems, um, a, again, key thing I think there is have a good framework and simple tools, and then make lesson capture a mandatory part of every role. Three lessons a day from everybody. If you've got seven in the team, that's 21 lessons a day. That's 105 lessons a week. If those are captured and documented and then shared and trained, odds are that's half a percent a day improvement. That will mean that your sales performance and every department performance will improve by 273% per annum. Over three years, that's nearly 900%. Over four years, that's 2,700%. Yeah? Now, you say that it takes 10 years to exit a business. Implement that. And by the time you're ready to exit, if you're not a billion-dollar unicorn with a minimum number of headcount that is operating fantastically uh, on turnkey processes, at every process acts as a flywheel, uh, I'd be amazed. So true. Thank you. Excellent. Okay. So you've got a golden ticket and you can go back in time and you can advise the idiot Aram, age 23, uh, when you knew everything, what bit of advice would you have given him based on your scar tissue today that you know he would have ignored but would have valued? Be very careful about the co-founders that you bring on because they're <laughs> lifelong. Really, really spend a lot of time seeing if they're the right fit. One. Two, when your business pivots drastically, shut the business down, start a new company, create a new cap table. Very good idea. Three, when I went through my first company and I did it young, I learned a lot and I encourage people to go through the risk of trying something early on. Because honestly, you don't have to have your life figured out. You could fail a lot in your 20s. And a lot of entrepreneurs who I speak to don't really go and start the businesses till like 30s, 
and they're a lot more risk conscious at that point. But if you start earlier, you have 10, 15 years to fail a lot and you should do it. It's you learn a lot and you get better at what you do. And for any time you have an idea, go and speak to your users, find them, talk to them. I can't stress this enough. It's so important that you are listening to what they're saying, not selling, but listening. Well, interestingly enough, in LinkedIn's uh, report on the state of sales in December 2020, listening was the one thing buyers wanted more than anything else, but they're not getting. And every salesperson in their onboarding process should be trained to listen surgically. That means you're listening with empathy, but you're also listening for opportunity to help. And you're listening through the customer's ears. Um, You're not thinking about the customer, you're thinking as the customer. And that is something that is desperately lacking. The other thing that I think every uh, business owner and every salesperson needs to develop is business acumen. You need to understand what it's like to be the CEO, COO, CFO, CMO, CRO, CTO, CIO, CISO uh, within your target accounts. And you need to understand the moving parts. So if you change something here, then it's going to have a knock-on effect elsewhere. You need to understand the jobs that they are trying to get done, the value that they're trying to bring. If you don't have that before you start out, All you're going to do is you're going to talk about your ugly kid and you're going to talk about product features and benefits. And you may even inflict a photograph of your headquarters on them in a PowerPoint. Do not do that. Okay. Uh, One final question then. Um, What are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment that you really rate? So I'm reading the book Range about generalists. I actually spend a lot of time just um, on Flipboard where I get my news. Flipboard, right. Yeah, it's um. I have very targeted news around startups, new and new uh, technologies. So that's where I get a lot of my my news information that keeps me current. I frankly, I want to do more reading. Don't have the time, so I listen to a lot of podcasts as well. Excellent and audiobooks. I've listened to about eight hundred audiobooks in the last eight years, and I can't say I've implemented everything. But what it has given me is an enormous amount of range because I'm now able to connect the dots from the last 4,000 years of the history of China through to behavioral economics, through to quantum theory, and pretty much everything in between. So read widely. Don't just stick to business books. Read widely. Read history, biographies. Read about momentous change. Uh, Read about bubbles, because I guarantee... We are in uh, the throes of the the latter stages of a couple of bubbles. Tesla is a bubble. Bitcoin is a bubble. The venture capital and private equity markets are a bubble. And you need to understand how to survive when there's blood in the streets. I agree. Excellent. Aram, how can people get hold of you? Connect with me on LinkedIn. I have a lot of links to our um, content that we also do around product innovation series and... uh, investors and founders talking about how to raise capital effectively or reach out to me at aram at crowdlinker.com that's my uh, direct email and yeah i'm pretty responsive excellent 
Aram Melkamov, thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, Marcus. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation and you found it useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and do subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling disposed to, then go on to Apple Podcasts, scroll down beyond the fold on the page, and leave an honest uh, review. Now, if you're the owner or the CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million mark, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real and sustainable hypergrowth, so the wings and wheels don't fall off, you don't end up burning through lots and lots of people, and you don't end up churning your customers. What you really want are highly engaged, highly productive employees in all of your revenue operations and clients who stick with you year after year, decade after decade. Then let's schedule some time for a brief conversation. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com. That's marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. We've recently launched a community called Sales of Force for Good which is pro-customer and all about creating buyer safety in order that sales can be wrestled back from the shysters, snake oil salespeople and boiler room sellers and the managers and investors who've tainted it over the last 40, 50 years um, by putting the financial cart before the customer and employee horse. The challenge is to try and turn sales into a real powerhouse 30% of buyers, 33% of buyers in a Gartner report said that they want a 100% seller-free buying experience. Two-thirds of buyers said that they consider sales and salespeople to be morally bankrupt in a LinkedIn report. So it's our job to seize the control back and create the conditions for the next generation of salespeople and sales leaders. So if you're interested in that, then please drop me a line via direct message or check out the hashtags ProCustomer and hashtag SAFFG. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.